We're going to have our main Bible reading now, which is Luke chapter 12, verses 1 to 48. So do turn with me. I'm reading from the ESV. There are Bibles at the back. If you haven't brought your own. Luke 12, beginning at verse, verse 1. It says this. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you, that, teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of one's possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up, For many years, relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. And he said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will uh, put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap, They are neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Oh, how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you're not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow, neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, are you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. 
Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his, his house to be broken into. You must be ready for the Son of Man who is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, do you tell this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to him, My master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and in an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who does not know and did what the one who did not know and did what deserves a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required, and from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Well, do keep that text open. We're looking at that uh, together. There's an outline of where we're going in your service sheet, and at the end there'll be an opportunity for questions and comments. But before we go any further, let's pray and ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God who is truthful, good, and rightly sovereign over us. And we pray, therefore, as your people, that we respond to your word by listening to it, by trusting it, and obeying it. In this way, we would vindicate you uh, as our God. In Jesus' name, amen. As we have um, gone through Luke's gospel so far, where do you think opposition to Jesus began? I mean, we saw it last week, if you were here, in Luke chapter 10, with the lawyer who stood up and put Jesus to the test. Then back in Luke chapter 6, remember when Jesus healed um, the withered man's hand on the Sabbath? Uh, the scribes and Pharisees were, we're told, filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to him. Then actually, even at the beginning of his ministry in Nazareth, he was driven out of town and brought to the brow of the hill on which the town was built so that the people could throw him down the cliff. And at his temptation, the devil sought to oppose God's purpose for him and to entice him to follow an alternative path. 
Now, we could, of course, go back even further than Luke's Gospel, as was intimated in the text last week of Luke 11, that from the foundation of the world, there's been a whole line of God's prophets who have been killed and persecuted and opposed. And this is an opposition that ultimately finds its origin in Genesis chapter 3, with Adam and Eve contesting God's rule. Jesus is experiencing this opposition, and he is anticipating it to grow as he approaches Jerusalem. And that will ultimately lead to his crucifixion and death. But as well as being directed at him, he anticipates that it will in due course be directed at those who follow him. And this would appear to be the context for the teaching of Jesus that follows in Luke chapter 12. Jesus is aware of the opposition rising against him and of what that will mean for him and may mean for those who follow him. And it's here that Jesus prepares his disciples for sharing in that opposition. And so Jesus says, Luke chapter 12, verse 4, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear who, him whom, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. We might think fear is a bad thing and that the desirable position is that we have no fear of anything or anyone. Yet Jesus says, fear God, verse 5. Don't fear your persecutors, but do fear God. In other words, it's not that we're to have no fear, but we're to have the right fear. What we fear reveals where we think true power lies. And it's this idea of power that Jesus explores. The persecutors, they have some power. They can kill you. But after that, there's nothing more that they can do to you. Verse 4. God's power, well, that's of a different magnitude. After you've been killed, says Jesus, God has power to cast you into hell. Verse 5. So whilst the persecutors appear to have some power, it's limited, limited to this life, whereas God, well, he has power over our eternities. There's these two different orders of power, temporary as opposed to eternal. And to fear your persecutors would betray where true power actually lies. True power lies with God, so fear him. But this fear of God needs to be informed by who God is. If God were a tyrant, then that fear would always be a fear of at some point being brutalised by him. Yet look at how God is described in Luke chapter 12, verse 6. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. 
Jesus employs one of those how much more arguments here. The point is that five, star- five sparrows are sold for two pennies. Well, that signals that sparrows are insignificant birds of low value. Yet, not one of them escapes God's attention. The implication is that if God cares for the sparrows, how much more will he care for his disciples? Jesus notes that God is aware even of the number of hairs on a person's head. They're more important than sparrows. If God cares for the sparrows, how much more will he care for you, since you are of more value than they? Jesus' teaching here helps orientate the disciples amid this growing opposition to him. If they fear their persecutors, they risk being compromised. But if they fear God, they will contend in persecution and remain faithful. In Luke 12, 22, Jesus says this. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about, what, uh, about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. <clears throat> what is he saying here? Is Jesus commending the happy-go-lucky, unconcerned, irresponsible character who never gets anything done on time, who doesn't care about the next five minutes, let alone tomorrow? Have a look at verse 31. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Jesus is not saying, don't worry, full stop. Jesus is saying, don't worry about your life, but instead, seek his kingdom. Or if I can put it this way, don't worry about your life, worry instead about the kingdom of God. Or don't be concerned about your life, but instead be concerned about the kingdom of God. In other words, Jesus isn't saying don't worry, but worry about the right things. It's a question of priorities. Jesus was well aware what the pagans prioritised, But he says that his disciples are not to share the same priorities, but instead to seek God's kingdom. And for this reason, we're not to understand Jesus' command, do not be anxious, as Jesus attacking worry itself. The problem's not that we're concerned. It's what are we concerned about. Jesus doesn't say don't worry, He says, don't be concerned about those things, but do be concerned about these things. It's about having the right priorities in life. Now, this, I think, makes sense of why the parable of the rich fool is there in Luke chapter 12, 13 to 21. For there is a rich man with the wrong priorities. Now, here's a man who thinks he's made provision for himself. He's the kind of man who thinks he's got every eventuality covered so he can relax. 
You know, a kind of man who seeks to build a cocoon around himself, whether it's an insurance policy for this or that, money in the bank, pension funds here and there. The mindset is, I've got it all covered. All the bases are covered. The folly of the man is that he has left his most important base uncovered, the eternity of his soul. He's made no provision there. Or to put it another way, he has taken no advantage of the provision of the Son in this regard and the mercy and kindness of God. His priorities were all wrong. So verse 20, God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. This parable then comes as a warning to pursue the right priorities. You know, in this context of growing opposition to Jesus, the disciples may be tempted to seek material security. You know, persecution can involve social ostracism and loss of livelihood. And therefore, material security is an attractive option, alternative to rejection. But the parable of the rich man reveals the folly of such wrong priorities. Well, it's in Luke chapter 12, verse 40, that Jesus speaks about the coming of the Son of Man. Chapter 12, verse 40, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. But what coming is he referring to? We might imagine that Jesus is referring to what Christians call the second coming. Yeah, the first coming refers to Jesus' first coming, him being born, his life, death, resurrection. Then in his ascension, he goes away. And then there's a second coming when he returns and brings about the final judgment and the new heaven and the new earth. So that in Luke 12, verse 40, Jesus is talking about being ready for the second coming. But is that the way to read it? I mean, from a disciple's point of view, I mean, they don't even know Jesus is going away. They don't comprehend his death and resurrection, let alone his ascension and subsequent return. I mean, something we're very familiar with, but not so the disciples at this point. They don't really know about his second coming. Furthermore, there is, do you notice that sense of immediacy to Jesus' warning about being ready? You know, Stay dressed for action. Keep your lamps burning, says Jesus in verse 35. You must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Yet none of them were to see the second coming. They all died. We're all still waiting. You know, are we to understand that Jesus expected to return in their lifetime, but he got it wrong? Whatever this coming of the Son of Man is, there's an imminency to it. Sounds imminent. 
Well, I mentioned earlier that uh, the Son of Man is Jesus' favourite way to refer to himself. And Jesus will eventually reveal that the title comes from Daniel chapter 7. And it's that passage that we read earlier in the meeting. So let's take another look at it. If you'd like to turn to Daniel 7, it would help you. Now, if you notice, in Daniel chapter 7, verse 9, Daniel talks about the Ancient of Days seated on his throne. At the end of verse 10, the book's been opened before him. And it's a picture of the great judgment scene with the Ancient of Days, where the whole world has been brought before the judgment seat. And at the crucial point in verse 13 of Daniel 7, one who is like the Son of Man comes on the clouds and he is given by the Ancient of Days all power and authority to rule over the world and all its peoples for all time. Now the key word here is the word coming. Because we have a tendency to be egocentric, whenever we hear the word come, we think it means to us. If I say, are you coming... I think it means, are you coming to where I am? That's the nature of the word coming as far as we're concerned. But the key question is coming in which direction? Is the Son of Man coming to earth? Or is the Son of Man coming to the Ancient of Days? Which way is he coming? Well, if you read Daniel 7, it's perfectly clear which way he's coming. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. The son of man is coming to the ancient of days to receive from the ancient of days all authority to rule the earth. And so when Jesus talks about the coming of the Son of Man, is he talking about the coming back to earth of the Son of Man? Or is he talking about the coming of the Son of Man to heaven to receive all power and authority to rule the earth forever? In other words, is Jesus actually saying to his disciples, be ready, for it is imminent that the Son of Man will come to the Ancient of Days to receive his power and authority of the kingdom of God. Now, if that's the case, well, what are we talking about? We're talking about the ascension of Jesus. That's what. When did the kingdom of God come? In the death, resurrection, and ascension. In the coming of the Son of Man to the Ancient of Days, God appointed Jesus Lord over all the earth. And this would explain why it is that they've got to do things urgently. The whole manner of the mission so far in Luke is urgency, speed, haste, in everything they're doing, travelling light, no permanent house, not being held up by the resistance from people. If you go back and bury your father, you'll miss it. Jesus is talking about a moment in history when at least, at least in the first instance, he's about to be taken up to heaven in the inauguration 
of the kingdom of God. Well, we began by observing that there is a growing opposition to Jesus as he heads to Jerusalem. His suffering, of course, will have a unique redemptive significance. Yet this opposition will have ongoing implications for those who follow him. And so there is this preparation concerning the priority of the kingdom of God. They're not to fear their persecutors, but fear God who cares for them. They're not to be concerned about their lives, but to seek first his kingdom. And this kingdom, well, it's one that has already come in the personal work of Jesus Christ. Well, let me pray. I'll open it up to any questions or comments you might have. Heavenly Father, as Jesus approaches uh, Jerusalem, we are aware that he is going there to lay down his life uh, for us and our, our salvation. And whilst there is this unique redemptive um, uh, work involved in his suffering and meeting uh, those who oppose him, we thank you how he prepares those that would follow him subsequently of the opposition that they will face because they bear his name. We thank you for these instructions and we pray that we would uh, reflect on them today, that we would be prepared uh, when we meet opposition to be those who uh, fear you and prioritise the advance of your kingdom. For your glory's sake, amen. Okay, anyone got any questions or comments? Thanks, Simon. Yes, so 12.10 says, And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Just as an aside, because I remember <clears throat> um, reading this as a few years ago, I think Tom was taking us through Genesis in Grace Group. And, oh, I've given it away already. Oh. When you read 8.12, um, what, what are you thinking? Is there any, any text that you just think, oh, that sounds a bit like... Actually, I'm going to be brave. And does anyone want to... Anything in Genesis? Yeah, why is that? Yes, do you see that? So do you remember the promises in Genesis 12 
concerned that the promises are given to Abraham of God, which are the promises of the kingdom of God in their sort of early form, and basically they're put in terms of how you relate to Abraham determines whether you are blessed by God or cursed by God because he has the promises. And one of the themes that we saw throughout the book of Genesis is that the one who has the promises, because the promises don't die with Abraham, that's why it's so important that he has an offspring, because if he dies, the promises die with him. But Abraham um, does have um, Isaac, and the promises go to him. How you relate to Isaac determines whether you're blessed and cursed by God, and that's passed on. Now, of course, the New Testament identifies Jesus as the descendant of Abraham to whom the promises are fulfilled. Therefore, it's no surprise that how you relate to this one determines whether you'll be cursed or blessed by God. It's that big. It's, 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 it's who he is uh, because the promises um, reside with him. And so you've got this whole language of whoever acknowledges him will be acknowledged by God, but whoever denies him will be rejected by God. So in that sense, it's not, it's not, unfamiliar. Um, it's not an unfamiliar concept. So I think in verse 10, I think that's just another way that's been said, where it says, if anyone speaks a word against the Son of Man, he will be... Oh, okay, this is... Okay, yeah. And here it says, anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. So I think what's going on here is that, um, having said all of that, that uh, the Son of Man ultimately has come to bring redemption. And so there is forgiveness in the Son of Man. So if your posture is, is one that denies him, you're unrepentant, then if you're unrepentant, then in the same way that you reject the Messiah, you will be rejected by him ultimately. Um, but I, I take it here that there is um, this note of forgiveness um, that he brings. But the contrast is, if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you will not be forgiven. And I think that takes us back to, I think the context of that, is that back in, um, uh, where are we? Oh, is that um, Luke 11? Do you remember that basically they were saying of Jesus in Luke 11, uh, verse 14, you know when he's driving out demons, they say it's by, he's the prince of demons, that he's driving out demons, not by the spirit of God. And so I think that's related to this whole blaspheming the Holy Spirit, that you're attributing to the Holy Spirit the works of, of demonic activity. And ultimately, that's going to have an effect on how you assess Jesus. Because you know, the way they're putting him together, rather than thinking, here is the stronger man who is opposing and defeating Satan, they're saying, actually, here is one who is the head of the demonic world. And obviously, if that is your assessment of him, well, there's no salvation, because you've, you've denied the very one that brings that. I think that's... So the Abraham bit was probably a bit of a distraction, <laughs> but it's helpful. Is that okay, Sam? So, and I think that's helpful. So it's one thing. Is I think sometimes when we think, if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you sometimes get this idea, oh, there's this particular sin that if I commit, that I'm in, I've blown it. 
you know, often it's like a sexual sin, and there's all kinds of folklore that go with that. But I think we need to go back to the context of Luke 11, and it's a concept, concept of our assessment of who Jesus is. That's the blaspheming as opposed to a, a particular sin we've committed. Anybody else? Hmm. Nikki. Yes. So I was expecting this. So twelve thirty-eight. If he comes on the second watch when the third he finds them awake, uh, blessed are those servants. But know this, if the master of the house had known at which hour the thief was coming, he would not have left the house to be broken into. You also must be ready for the second, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Um, and your question is, what does it mean um, for him to come in the second or third watch? Is that right? Yeah, so I, I think... I think, because it's a parable, I think he's, he's, he's saying, basically, be ready. Whether, you don't know if he's going to come at the first watch, the second watch, the third watch. And I think this language will come on to, because do you remember, in the, um, as he approaches the Gethsemane and the crucifixion, there is this stay awake, and you kind of go through this watch language, and the disciples fall asleep, and they stay awake. So I think, I'm not sure there's a kind of a one-to-one correspondence in terms of what are these different wakes, what does it mean to fall asleep at this wake or um, at at this watch or this watch, but it's basically, this is so imminent that you you need to be alert. Now's not the time to do anything other than be prepared because the programme is to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to be crucified and therefore that's what they're attentive for. So I think it's, I think it's, it's a way of, of saying, be ready. And it could be the first watch, second or third. Is that okay? Yeah. Mm. Yes. Well, it's interesting, yeah, who is, when he says for us or for all, who is included in this. And it's interesting that, you know, in the parable that he talks about in verse 41, and we've had this on the final reflection, that in that, in verse 46, there are the unfaithful. So there is a warning in this parable that there will be those who found they either know God's will and are not doing it, or they do not know God's will and they're not doing it. And so I think, I remember in the commentary, that the all here is a, the, the crowd, the people who are there. This, is a, um, this involves you know, maybe the, the leaders of Israel. This is a, uh, 
this isn't just a, a private word to his disciples, but this is, um, there are implications of this coming for, for all the people. I think so. Cool. Time for more, or we're all done? I've gone, Susie. Yes, no, that's a very helpful question. So let me give you um, a couple of thoughts. First thing is, is you know we talk about, um, just explain a terms, you know we talk about an over-realised eschatology and an under-realised eschatology. So eschatology is to do with, like, the last things, okay? And basically, you know, we've basically got the first coming of Jesus, the second coming of Jesus, the now and not yet, and then... New heaven, new earth, after the second coming, wiped away every tear, okay? And in many ways, it's not that difficult to understand, but basically, um, there's two ways of getting it wrong. One is an over-realised eschatology, which is basically where you take things that will only be experienced from the second coming at the first coming. So a classic example would be like a prosperity gospel, where basically you get health, wealth, and happiness now, in other words, God wipes away every tear from our eyes now. And that's not the case. It's when Jesus returns that every tear will be wiped away. So, and hence, there's this preparation of ongoing opposition and suffering, which is of a piece of this period in the now and not yet, because that opposition against God and his Christ continues. So that's, we're more familiar with that. One interesting thing is, what does an under-realised eschatology? So that would mean that we don't fully appreciate what's already happened and we're putting it all into the future. And this is where I think the Daniel 7 thing is, is really um, helpful, because the kingdom of God is already established. Jesus has already gone to the Ancient of Days. He's already received all power and authority, and he rules over his kingdom. So in other words, it's, the kingdom has already arrived. So we're not waiting for him to come back to establish the kingdom. It is already, we are in the kingdom of God, he is enthroned, and that's true for us. And so I guess it may be interesting to explore a bit more about actually how we, we fully appreciate what has already happened in the coming of Jesus, that he is already enthroned. And I think that is very strengthening, because we're not, it's not like, well, where is... Because you often get this. You know with Daniel, when you read the book of Daniel, often the parallels made between us and Daniel like Daniel's sort of living in exile. But I think, I think we're in a much stronger position than Daniel because Daniel was waiting for the kingdom of God to come. We're not waiting for the kingdom of God to come because it's already come. We're waiting for the consummation of the kingdom. It's already here. We're already in. And so that's, that's I think there's a, there's a, there's a you know, 
And also, I guess there's a warning there because we're not messing around. You know, it's not like we're... Because if, if it hasn't come, will it come? You know, all those things. It sort of sharpens our... Um, uh, I think it keeps us sharp and thinking. Now, just a second comment, and you'll come back. Is the... So... You know, when we talk about the coming of Jesus, often we rush to the second coming. And I'm saying... Well, in the, I don't know if you noticed, I was quite careful. I said it in the first instance... It's the first coming. Because I think sometimes the New Testament doesn't delineate. And I think we've been looking at it in, like, with Zechariah. You often get the, um, on that day, it's just a day. On that day, everything happens, which collapses the first and second comings. It's, that's, that's the coming of the kingdom. It's just as it happened, the coming of the kingdom, we, we find that it's, there's a little bit more going on, that there is this first and second coming, precisely so that we have this period of mercy that actually the gospel can be resented, repentance called for, people can be forgiven and enter the kingdom. That's why we've got this delay so that God's purposes are saving his people. So I do wonder if there's, there's almost like sort of two readings. There's a kind of a be ready, as in this immediate sense, for the coming of the kingdom, as in the coming of the Son of Man, which is the inauguration, but that doesn't preclude then a being ready for the coming, as in the judgment and then and the final. In other words, in many ways, there's only kind of one coming, but it's kind of in two bits. Um, but I, I guess I was deliberately being um, hopefully helpful in saying we tend to always think about the second. So I wanted to like, not overplay the first, but just say, look, in the first instance, it's this. But I think all of this, and it fits with the whole thing about priorities of the kingdom, which is this whole message is about, is that um, we, we want to be ready um, for his return. And we, we get ready by um, seeking first his kingdom, prioritising the kingdom. Um, so it's not that ready in the sense of, you know, interesting, because you know the whole bury, don't bury the dead that does feel to have a particular significance then. Whereas now, we can, you know, we've got time to bury the dead because it's not, it's not imminent, but it, although it could happen at any time. I don't know, does that, does that help? Well, yes, it's like, what, what will he be found doing? Like, when he comes back, will I be on the loo or will I be in the shower? I'd like to be found in prayer, reading the Bible, possibly singing our new song. No, so I think we'll cover this in the on final reflection, but the test in the parable, what's the test? Is faithfulness, faithful stewards. So I think that's because it's the unfaithful one so I think we're found doing God's will. And you know, we know God's will is it's this category of, of it's a broad category of doing what pleases God and, and bearing every good work. So you don't need to be worried if he comes back on the loo. As in like this, that's, it's, it's a, will, will, I be, will I be found faithful or will I be found unfaithful? That's the, that's the measure. Um, but there isn't, well, this is the thing. So I, I think here there isn't this like, be, this, because for them, there was this imminent. If you fall asleep, you're going to miss it. 
you know, if you bury the dead, you're going to miss it. And that isn't, I don't think we, we want to be quite that imminent with us because you just think, well, I've got, I, I need to get my heck, I can't, you know, I've got things to do. And I think we want to be living our lives, prioritizing the kingdom, but, but being found faithful. Yeah? Cool, great. All right, let's leave it there. We can chat more and on. And do chat with one another because wisdom lies within the church. We're going to sing um, another song, uh, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery.